Good evening and welcome to this Friday's edition of Stockwatch. I'm Zinati Kuma and joining me to wrap this week up are Rikas Riedes from PSG Reimsich and Caroline Kremen from AdviceWix. Thank you to the both of you for joining us. I want to start with you, Caroline. So we had the markets kind of nervous and rattled by the controversial visit by uh, US House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to Taiwan. Quite surprising though how markets turned around uh, a day later and basically kind of shrugged it off. I'm interested if you were paying attention to the kind of escalation and the implications maybe of that and also the de-escalation. Well, look, I must be honest with you. I think it depends on your political views. Um, I, I just looked at this as China's not going to cause a war over a visit. You know, I don't think you're sitting with a Putin type of um, situation. You know, China is really trying to integrate itself into the world economy. They've seen what has happened to Russia. I don't think, you know, that, that they're going to make any moves. You know, they're going to save a rattle, but I don't think they were going to make any moves that was really going to jeopardize themselves and their economy, you know, at a time when global growth is slowing. So I looked at it that way, and I thought, you're going to see lots of hot air and few missiles flying here and there. Yeah. Um, but it would supply when she was gone. Um, Rikas, are you also interpreting it as hot air? I mean, just today we, uh, we saw China um, sanctioning uh, Nancy Pelosi and her immediate family, and then we, they also had some military drills uh, around Taiwan. Um, yeah, hot air or... Is it maybe because, I mean, just, you know, Viv Govinda actually said a very interesting point earlier on that in January, um, if somebody had told you that Russia was going to invade Ukraine, nobody would have believed it. Um, what's your take? Nobody would have believed it, but that fear is always in the background. Um, so sometimes politicians say something and then they actually execute it. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is exactly what happened with um, Peter because he's been preparing for what's happened in the Ukraine for a long time and he's been saying so. So there's obviously a geopolitical tension between China and, and the US. As I've always said, it's not so much military as it is um, in IT. Uh, you know, there's an IT war that's been going on for a very long time between the US and China and sometimes um, you need a bit of cyber-rattling just to um, reinforce your um, role on the political st stage in as much as there's a heck of a lot of change happening at the moment, almost back to um, the Cold War. So, so if you've got two opponents now and again, they have to remind each other that um, they are serious about their specific role, not, not so much only in economic terms, but also in geopolitical terms. And does that then kind of make you um, question an investment or go into an investment into like, for example, Chinese chip companies with caution? Because, I mean, I guess that would be one of the, the things that it could affect. Uh, Caroline. Yeah, so, um, you know, Taiwan Semiconductors, I think, is is probably at issue here. Um, yes, it it does worry me quite a bit. You know, I would, you know, I don't think that there's going to be an invasion imminent, um, but um, certainly it, it, it is, is, is a company that, that is at risk. It puts the world at risk because it's one of the biggest suppliers. Um, 
I think, you know, it does actually put me off um, in investing in that specifically. You are seeing um, a lot of investments by governments. Um, you saw the U.S. come out of the semiconductor package um, that will assist, you know, homegrown, home-built yeah. semiconductors. So I would probably be focusing my attention there, which is a real pity because Taiwan Semiconductors really is a fabulous, fabulous company. But I think when you've got an alternative, mm. I would definitely take the alternative. Yeah, on your side, uh, Rickus, uh, TSMC, uh, that's actually been quite a firm favorite when you look at the chip makers. I mean, would that make you then, um, yeah, invest in, in competitors? Yeah, I agree with Caroline. I would, I would, I would rather f focus on uh, people who do their manufacturing in a more stable environment. You know, even even TSCM has just opened up a, um, or built, busy building a plant in America. I think it's Texas, if I'm not mistaken. So they're also shifting their geopolitical risk. Mm. But yeah, in broad terms, I agree with Caroline. If, if I'm not in the middle of some kind of conflict, um, then I'm a happy investor. Mm. All right, a topic that has been debated um, for, I think, the last week or two is the, you know, the question is uh, the U.S. in a recession or not? Uh, we spoke about it a little bit yesterday, uh, Caroline, um, just off the back of comments from James Bullard, a Fed official, saying that um, a recession is in the eye of the behold. I mean, what really matters here? Look, I think we... Well, what really matters, what actually fascinates me as well, is that the, the last Fed meeting, they said they weren't going to give forward guidance. And then literally a few days after that, you've got pretty much every Fed regional chief coming out and warning people that, that there might not be a recession, but one is potentially looming. Yeah. So the, the, what you can read from that is that they, they're definitely seeing that the risks are on the uptick. Now, looking at what happened yesterday with the Bank of England, you, you know, it was an absolutely catastrophic <laughs> mm. um, announcement, you know, that they made 13% inflation, they're going to have a recession for five quarters, end of year and the whole of 2023. So, you know, so you have to ask yourself, are they being alarmist or are they actually reading into what is happening in the market that other central banks won't really admit for, you know, in case they spook the market yeah. and essentially talk their countries into a recession. But what I take from it is that they're looking at things, central banks everywhere and saying, look, everybody just hold fire. Things are not as good as they can be. They're not as bad as they can be either, but the risks are to the downside. Yeah. On your side, uh, Rickus, does it matter what we're calling it? Um, yeah, I think it does. Um, um, I think I'll start off with what Caroline is saying. Is, you know, the more you talk about recession, the more likely it is to happen because it feeds on itself. In other words, it just feeds on sentiment. And if you're pessimistic, pessimistic about the future, you're not going to invest. Yeah. So there seems to be um, this push and pull between, you know, how much is inflation going to be? How much is growth going to be? And certainly the central banks have been getting it wrong. So there's no reason why they're going to get it right uh, going forward. Mm -hmm. So, so what they say affects sentiment rather than um, relying on their forecast, I think, for the moment. Um, they, they mostly get it wrong, but in this instance, from last year to now, they've got it spectacularly wrong. Mm. So um, you, you really cannot rely, on, and it's not really their fault, because as I've said, um, they're not getting it right in the best of times. It's just, it's just par for the course, and, and this time it's, left, it's landed in the MRF itself. 
Um, it, it influences what my stock pick is later um, in this, you know, in in this program. Okay. And I think everybody's forgetting the the third horse, which is which only happens about twenty percent of the time, and that's the inflation. I think that's probably more where we're heading towards, you know, sort of the late 60s type of global, uh, 1960s type of global um, environment. Yeah. All right. Um, sticking with the global theme, there's a question here from a viewer. Uh, if your guest had $5,000 to punt uh, on any overseas stocks or ETF, which two would they choose? This is punt money, uh, 10 bagger or bust. No problem either way. <laughs> $5,000, any two, stock or ETF, anything. Caroline. Well, I'm going to be a huge disclaimer here because as a house, this is not something we hold. Yeah. Um, so it's a punt, so yeah. First of all, an exchange, it's a punt. And yeah. So, so please compliance, come looking for me. Um, I think my punt on the exchange, <laughs> the exchange rated fund would be, be a uranium exchange traded funds because I do think this energy crisis is going to force people to go more into the nuclear field. Mm. And my stock pick would be a company called Wolfspeed, um, and that's just simply because I'm a complete tech nerd. Um, this is not a stock to put your whole money in. Please, yeah. if you've got that 5,000 Rand hanging around and you're quite happy to lose it, this might be a good investment. It's burning cash. It's not profitable. This is a high risk, but potential high return stock. This is the company. Um, we see a move from silicon chips to silicon carbide chips. Silicon carbide chips use less energy and and they can be smaller. So they're being increasingly used in electronical electronic vehicles and industrial. Uh. And this is really the way, you know, we're probably going into a semi-silicon carbide chips super cycle. Um, and this is, you know, this is the first mover. Yeah. So wolf speed for me. Okay. All right. Uh, I get you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the viewer did say this is punt money, um, bag or bust. Uh, on your side, Rickers? Okay, you're not going to get a 10 bag in an ETF. That's, <laughs> that's pretty, that's, that's um, pretty difficult. Um, yeah, I think, I think 10 bagger wise, um, stock is a pick I've had before. It's called Grit Gresham um, Industrial Energy Fund or whatever they, they do battery, additional supply in the UK um, for municipalities. Now, if you've got a going forward, they, they deliver or to to the load when, when it's also a pretty new kind of fund. Um, and on the um, exchange traded fund side, for the longer term, I've planted this one before as well as is the Satrix India fund. And that's because I'm worried about China having, I think they are um, post-export growth and they're going to focus internally and um, India is the kind of development or developing economy that is export driven and they might take over that role in the future. I'm talking five or six years from now. Yeah. All right. Uh, let's get into um, local companies. So there's a question here on a junior coal miner, MC Mining. Is MC Mining worth looking at? Caroline. Well, um, the share price has popped, um, you know, because they came out with a trading statement, or sorry, uh, a cautionary saying that they're looking at additional funding, which will fund additional ventures. Um, yes, it's interesting to look at. Um, I'm not sure if I would be buying in in the current environment. I think, um, look, I think coal is, um, is, is, if you saw Glencore results, yeah. you know, you saw the benefits of actually having a coal investment. 
Um, so I think it's interesting to look at to see how how the results are coming out. Shortly. Yeah. So if they, it'll be interesting to see how well they've done, how well they've done in the current environment where they should have had tailwinds from this. From being a coal producer in South Africa, and I, I tend to be very skeptical about this, it's one thing to produce coal for export. It's another thing to get it down to the ports and yes. out of South Africa. And even bigger players will tell you that you know infrastructure is in a mess. You know, and that's going to eat into people's profits, even if they can get it out of the country. So I would be cautious because despite of the fact that you've got the coal tailwinds and it might be very well run, you know, all of our infrastructure issues just could come back and erode those margins. Mm. And I'm wondering, uh, Rikas, if if you want to invest in coal, because, I mean, at this time we've seen the upside of, you know, the the prices with the energy crunch, um, Although there are challenges in terms of getting the coal out of the country, but seeming like a, a, a good place to be in right now. So would you go in for MC Mining as more of a cheap entry point into coal? Because looking at companies such as Glencore, Tungela, that's, the prices run away. So would this be a good cheap entry point into coal? Yeah, I mean, I think if you're a, if you're a speculator, if I can use that word, it's it is interesting. Um, long-term investment, well, resources are never a long-term investment. They're always tradable things. So I'd be hesitant probably to go into something that's that volatile um, at this point in the uh, in, in the resource cycle. But the thing with MC Mining is, as far as I know, they um, have been sort of forced to um, switch to exports. I don't think they've had any offtake from their... Um, main customer in, in South Africa over the past 12 months. Yeah. And although it is difficult to export, and I know absolutely nothing as to how Richards Bay allocates space, I would imagine that for a small player like MC Mining, um, you know, any export is immediately beneficial to their bottom lines. I mean, it, it just makes sense. If, if you're a company that has to export or that's producing 100, 100 tons of coal, yeah. Um, it's going to be more difficult to export than a company that, actually, that just produces one ton of coal. So, so, so the size and volume that we're dealing with as far as MC mining is concerned, make, maybe, as I said, I don't know how rich this may allocate, but it might make it easier to actually get something on a ship as far as MC mining is concerned. Hmm. All right. A very interesting question coming from a viewer about multi-choice. Of course, there's also there's always that debate around Netflix versus multi-choice versus Disney. So, uh, yeah, the viewer says there's talk of multi-choice losing high premium paying customers to Netflix. But if you drive past any lower income housing areas and even squatter camps, all you can notice are thousands of white satellite dishes. These customers may be on the cheaper options, but they are never switching away from DSTV to Netflix as they won't be able to afford the fiber prices. Imagine this is the same scenario in the rest of Africa. Surely this makes multi-choice a utility type share that is ex-growth, but with a stable future income and a fantastic dividend, especially for Putumanati shareholders. Your view, Caroline. Yeah, I wouldn't call it utility just yet. Uh, multi-choice, um, you know, really 
breaks their customers down into three groups. You've got the premium group, and then you've got the lower end, you know, which is what you're seeing when you drive along the highways. Then you've got that mid-tier. Now, you know, we, they, you have been seeing loss from the premium tier to that mid-tier. It does affect them financially. Obviously, premium, you're paying an enormous amount of money for, yeah. <laughs> for multiple channels. Um, you've seen their subscription revenue um, is 82% of the business, but but the subscriber base grew 5%, but the revenue only grew 3%. So there is a bit of cannibalization. I think what multi-choice has in, to their advantage is that, you know, as an African player, um, they can compete really almost without, you know, any type of competition within Africa. We've seen them start to produce a lot more local content, a lot of regional content in the other African countries. They've got about 70,000 hours now of local content in their library. Um, they have licensing deals, which are long-term Sony. They've just signed with Sony for three years. Um, so even though they're losing premium subscribers, their loss seems to be stabilizing and the revenue that they're getting from that mid-tier is growing. So there's also potential issues for the, you know, the Netflix and the Disney that, that you can actually get either through your fiber or through the multi-choice or through the decoder platform. And it's something that ICASA is probably going to be looking at. They've, they've reopened um, the probe into the pay TV um, market in South Africa in May. And there's a couple of issues that they're probably going to have with these companies. First of all, they want to see them pay South Africa tax. Mm. Um, you know, it's very difficult for, for multi-choice to compete if they're forced to have local content. But these guys, you know, who can take away their lunch are not forced to have local content. And then, you know, the government is probably going to want to see what BEE, um, you know, transactions can, you know, can be taken from that. So so there might be headwinds coming for the guys who are trying to, you know, eat into MTM, um, sorry, multi-choice. Mm. So I don't think it's a utility. I think it's, it's a strong company. It's got strong revenue. It's got strong customer base. Um, I think the the loss to the lower ends is is stabilizing, but the growth into Africa is still there's still enormous potential there for me. Okay, uh, Rickers, would you say that the pie is big enough for all of them at this point in Africa? Um, no, I think Caroline is precisely on point with what she says, and whoever asked that question is precisely on point as far as fiber is concerned. I think Multichoice is going to steal on the fiber companies, as she said. Um, or as he said, um, fiber is simply too small in, in Africa at the moment to make things like Netflix seriously competitive with multi-choice. Mm. And that's not going to change very soon. So I agree with Caroline, multi-choice still has a lot to do in Africa and, 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 and will continue to gain support specifically as far as local and regional um, content is concerned. I think people overestimate the danger that your big cable guys or you know things like Netflix or or Disney has on um, on um, mm. on on multi choice. Yeah, so so Disney and Netflix are not the death of multi choice, essentially. No. Not yet. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, let's take a look at uh, other questions. Um, Remgro's revised offer for MediClinic. How generous is it? Um, I know, Caroline, I spoke to you yesterday and you said that you'd be uh, with the board. They did make a unanimous decision that it is, um, yeah. But now you have uh, reports coming in and saying that 
minority shareholders could actually fight for a better price. Do you think that they, they, they could succeed? Look, you know, when you look at a valuation of a company, you're not only looking at the business as it is now, you're looking at the business as, as it is then. And I think, you know, I think it is a generous price based on the business it is now because some of the growth that you need to unlock from that business going forward is as Remgro and MCS have said, is going to be difficult to unlock while it's a listed business and you're having to comply with all the regulations in a public market. You know, so it's it's a bit, you know, disingenuous of minority shareholders to come and say, we want that growth that you wouldn't get if you were listed <laughs> <laughs> in, in, in our price. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, I'm not in favor of them. The money's good. Take the money. Mm. Walk away. <laughs> okay. Um, so... I actually want to ask you, uh, Rickus, on the Remgro side, because, I mean, we know the kind of corporate activity that they've been ramping up to unlock uh, that value as an investment holding company. We saw that with yeah. Distel and now with uh, Mediclinic. So I'm wondering how much more upside you see in Remgro. And you can also add anything you want to add on the Mediclinic front if it's a good enough offer as well. Well, adding, adding, you know, there's a reason why Anglers or sorry, Remgro is buying Mediclinic yeah. and there's probably a reason why um, Remgro spun out Rainbow Chickens. They know what they should keep and what they should spun out to to, to themselves. So I think it makes Remgro as an investment um, company more attractive. And um, I think this is also the most dynamic I've seen Remgro in a decade, in other words, as far as corporate production is concerned. So mm. I think, um, yeah, as an investment company with increasingly attractive assets, um, yeah, it's, it, it's not some place that I wouldn't want to be. I, if I'm just, you know, so yeah. that seems pretty positive about it. All right. Here's another question. Sapi and Mondi both came out with excellent results yesterday. They have successfully managed to increase prices in the face of cost pressures. Although they are ca cautiously upbeat about the outlook, is the panel seeing any divergence, though, between the two companies, Caroline, Mondi and Sapi? No, not really. You know, there's a lot of overlap and then there's a lot of non-overlap. Non you know, it's, mm. it's always, always difficult to, you know, to, to kind of differentiate between the two. I think previously the differentiator for, for most people was the, that SAPI had a lot of debt. Yeah. Okay. Um, so it was immediately, well, discard SAPI and, and, and pick Mondi, which is the, the quality play. I think that, that that thesis is out the window now. You know, SAPI has reduced their debt. We are seeing, you know, the company's very, very different company. So, um, you know, it's really just going to, and, and the paper market, you know, is relatively stable, but they're different drivers at different points in time. So yeah. at times you can be right with SAPI and times you can be right with Mondi. Okay. Um, hit your bet. Take a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, you know, Caroline, I speak to a lot of different people because this is an ongoing debate between Sapi and Mondi. And you take a look at some of the guys that have been around for a very long time and they, they won't go anywhere near Sapi because of the, 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 the history with, with the debt. I mean, no. looking at these results that we've been seeing for the past two quarters, I mean, would that have they changed your mind in any way or have they reinforced um, your, your thinking on Sapi? No, look, they, they said that they were going to turn this around. I think this is the, exactly, it was an industry version yeah. <laughs> actually going in there. 
Um, and and I think that they really have turned that situation around very, very nicely. And, you know, the paper market, you know, it is, you know, one would have sort of, you know, like, Computers think that there was a, the death of this, you know. Yeah. But you know, you're still seeing that demand for boxes and all the packaging that we use just just grow. So it's a nice part of the commodity space to be in because mm. it's relatively less volatile than something like gold or platinum. Yeah. So I'm prepared to when you've made it a big change to your company for the good. Yeah. You know, you need to give them the benefit of the doubt um, yeah. because this is. You know, it's a good management team that would do that. So I'm prepared to give them the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> um, Rikas, uh, Sapi, the benefit of the doubt. And just in addition to that, I mean, would you be seeing Mondi as maybe less cyclical than Sapi as well, considering the exposure to e-commerce packaging? I mean, that's one of the reasons I've liked Mondi is I think they've got more innovative um, products than Sapi. Mm. Except obviously Mondi is now sitting with a 20% of their earnings problem in Russia, mm. which I see they haven't impaired at all. So I think they've, they, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm probably being a bit cynical, but they have the Russian operations um, as marked for sale until yeah. they get an offer. I don't think they are going to accept any offer because, again, cynically, they also see war as just one way to get some kind of political settlement. So. So they don't want to lose that 20% of their assets by selling it for one ruble and, and foregoing any kind of profit that they have, although they might be forced to, okay. um, you know, if, if it really becomes the case that they can't repatriate any yeah. income from, that, from a country whatsoever. So that's the problem with Mondi at the moment. All right, definitely um, a wait and see, yeah. Yeah. All right, let's get to your stock pick. 20 seconds for each of you. Caroline. Okay, well, I'm going to go with one I said yesterday because I'm really feeling very strongly about this. Anglo-American, I know the share price has fallen. I know that their results weren't good. I know earnings went down. But, you know, I'm very firm on my commodity. Getting a bit of a commodity exposure, this is an opportunity to do it now. Anglo is in the right space with the right commodities for the future. And, it again, this is like he's one of those companies that has turned itself around. Mm. And right. is positioned probably better than most companies. All right. Uh, Rikus, um, your stock pick for today? It's an overseas exchange traded fund called uh, DJP. It's the IPAL Bloomberg Commodity Index Total Return Fund, which is a huge name for something which is actually very simple. If we are heading for a stagflation, um, your best sector of performance is normal, normally your broader commodity index. In other words, that will be oils, metals, grains, um, cattle, whatever. Most commodity funds are heavily weighted towards mining and specifically oil. This specific fund almost has an equal weighting in all 16 sectors with a mandate, say, no more than 12% in anything. So if my thesis is correct that we're going to stagflation, that your broader commodities are going to do the best, but you don't know which one are going to do the best at any specific time, have something that is equally weighted, and this fund suits that purpose perfectly. All right, very, very interesting. Well, thank you very much to the both of you for your time and your insights today. That's it for Stockwatch this week. Thanks to my guests, Rikas Riedas from PSG Reimsich and Caroline Kremen from AdviceWorks. From Izanati Kuma and the rest of the team, have a great weekend.